We are beginning a new series over the summer. Uh, Each week, uh, we are going to take a piece of art and use that piece of art to see how it opens up a piece of scripture for us. So the title of the series is Believing is Seeing, um, and you can play with that idea in your head all you like. Uh, The the whole point being that uh, as we believe, we see more clearly, but with art, one of the things it does, I think, is help us to see our faith a little more clearly or in different ways. Gives us a different imagination, if you like. Uh, This book here, uh, which actually, if you're looking for a summer read, uh, a, a nice Christian book, Uh, I'd thoroughly recommend this. It's called Jesus is Better Than You Imagined by a guy called Jonathan Merritt. It's really light and easy to read and uh, brilliant. But he has this quote uh, in it. He says, faith is the enduring ability to imagine life in a certain way. And I love that quote. Faith is the enduring ability to imagine life in a certain way. And see, art helps us because it gives us a new imagination. It helps us to see things that we don't otherwise see. So what are we going to do in this series? Well, what we're not going to do, two things we're not going to do. This is not about us becoming art experts or art critics, okay? Because I know nothing about art and I can't draw on a straight line. So it's not about that. It's also not about learning more about art. That's not the goal. We may end up learning more about art. That's a sideline to what we're actually doing. What we are trying to do is see how art can help us to see scripture stories more clearly, and as a result, how we can therefore see God more clearly. It's a bit different. We're going to have some different preachers, but I think it's going to be fun. I hope it is. And I think it's going to be really helpful. It's also worth saying we are looking at visual art in all of that we're doing, but it's worth saying that art is far bigger than just visual art. In fact, I think all of them are paintings, apart from one, which is another piece of visual art, but they're all paintings. But I would want to inc- make sure that we, when we think about art and the place of art in our faith and in how we live, that we would definitely be including things like sculpture. We would be including music. We would be including dance. We would be including drama. All of these things are really great gifts of the arts. And for us in the church, I think the question is how we embrace that in a way that's life-giving. Because the church used to be the main sponsor of the arts. If we go back centuries, it's not true anymore. And so we need to be a place where we begin to become a sponsor of the arts. And by sponsor, I mean an encourager of. Most of us probably can't afford to have great big uh, pieces of art that we can buy. We don't have the funds to do that, but we can encourage art and artists in our church. So I want to make a few statements, first of all, about what art is and why it's helpful to us. And then I'm going to do a very short uh, picture. I'm going to take one image and a Bible story and see how it opens it up for us. That's what I'm going to try and do today and not take too long to do it. Is that okay? So both an introduction and a quick first one. And I've picked a random painting that most of you will have no idea what it is, I suspect. So we'll see. There might be people in here who really do know what it is. We'll find out. Anyway, why does art matter? Art is a way of telling truth that is different that happens than when we speak verbal words. Art tells truth, or rather, good art tells truth. I remember listening to someone talk once, and they were talking about how uh, this Christian painter had painted this beautiful scene 
and everything was perfect. And this person really, really disliked that piece of art. And the reason was, they said, because it's not telling the truth. It doesn't show something of, that, is, that we can engage with that says something about how the world really is. And art has a really profound way of helping us see the way the world is and the way that it might be. And so it begins to cr- create this tension in us that we can see different. So it's, it tells truth. That's really important. And actually, it tells truth quite often in really subversive ways, in ways that words don't often communicate. So does anyone know who the artist is that did that? Banksy. That's right. Does anyone know where that is? It's on the wall between Palestine and Israel. The wall that Israel built against international law to keep themselves safe. A wall that, regardless of the politics, causes a great deal of poverty on both sides, but particularly on the Palestinian side. And he painted this. Something that turns the whole world upside down, right? The little girl. And there's loads of them all the way along that wall that he's done, and they're really interesting. We have a somewhat, I was going to say a guy. Banksy might not be a guy. We don't know who it is. There's a person who in our world today, whether you like his art or not, does some subversive truth-telling with art. It's a really good example to us. And actually, lots and lots of art tells the truth in quite subversive ways. It speaks truth to power in ways that actually should, be, should resonate with those of us uh, of faith who are called to speak truth to power. So that's the first one. Art is truth-telling. Art is co-creation. What do I mean by that? Let's turn to our Bibles. If you have your Bible with us, with you, uh, I'm going to read from Genesis. I'm going to spend a bit of time in Genesis this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit within it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures uh, that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And so you're saying, what does that have to do with art? God has made us to be co-creators with him. We were given in the old-fashioned translations, dominion, over the earth, rule over the earth. And that has a lot to say to us about kind of modern environmentalism and care for the earth and why we should be a big voice in that. But it also says that we as image bearers of God are like him. As we create, as we rule over the earth with him, like him, it's in a creative fashion. And so it's always been that we were to create cultures. And if we read early in Genesis, we see them creating cities and all that comes from cities and urban areas. And so art is a consequence of our human design and us as uh, image bearers of God and as fulfilling the mandate that God has given us to have dominion or rule over the earth is to be creators. Art is 
part of our calling as co-creators with God. Oh, they're out of order. Anyway, that'll do. Artists in the Bible. There are artists in the Bible. We have a couple of them uh, that are specifically named, but there are loads of musicians mentioned all throughout the New Test, uh, out the Old Testament, and we also discover uh, a whole bunch of artisans. And, and I want to point to one in particular. So we're going to look in the book of Exodus. And Exodus chapter 31, the first part of that. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have pointed, appointed Oholiab, the son of Ahishim, Ah I practiced this too, Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. And what was being commanded there was how uh, the tabernacle was to be set up. And so we see that actually God has ordained artists from the beginning for his glory. And if you look at when the temple comes to be built and all the people come to build the temple, one of the things I love about the temple, when you see how it's done, it's incredibly ornate. This place that's built to the glory of God. And there's all sorts of things in there that seem completely superfluous. Right down to the pomegranates on the top of the, the, the pillars. I, I had no idea what that's about. But there's, there's a thing about just ornate beauty being used to the glory of God that the Bible sees as a good thing. The art is in the Bible. God wants to raise up artists because they tell a story in a way that allows for us to see and experience something of the beauty and glory of God. Art is communication. I, I, I don't know terribly many artists. I, I know a couple. Um, and when you talk to them, they're fascinating people because they'll if you can get them to talk about their work, and some of them are incredibly shy and painfully so about their work. But um, I had this friend in, in Vancouver uh, who was an artist, and I remember asking him about his stuff. He painted in a particular way. It was all night scenes that he painted of cities. And I remember saying to him, well, Dave, what are you doing? Is it, just, is it just a pretty picture for somebody to put on the wall? Because they are pretty pictures to put on the wall. Um, and uh, he said, no. He said, I, I want you to notice that what cities are doing is they light up what they want you to look at and in darkness is what's hidden. So pay attention to what's in the shadows because actually that's where the real life of a city is. So Dave was making a point about he was communicating something with his art that maybe wasn't immediately obvious to somebody as uneducated in art as me, but there was something going on there. And it's really important that we recognize that because it communicates in a completely different way than words do. It's slower. I think you need to slow down to appreciate art. I don't think you can rush past a piece of art and go, oh, that's, that's that and move on. We need to slow down. It's why when you go to art galleries, there are usually benches that you can sit, at, sit on and look at the art there. It's more subtle it rarely hits you with a sledgehammer. I mean, that Banksy one's not terribly subtle, but most art is really subtle. And actually, you need to take time to sit and look at it and appreciate what it is that it's communicating. And as a result, we become more involved in that communicative 
communicative process, then sometimes we do certainly in this kind of setting where people just sit and listen to me talk for 25 minutes or so. I'm being slightly optimistic there with 25 minutes, but you know what I mean. That actually, there's, it does communicate, but it communicates in ways that, we, that are different than what we're used to. And we know that, right? Because if we think of something other than just visual art, if we think about music, I doubt there's anyone in this room who at some point hasn't just been deeply moved in their soul by a piece of music. Like just in a way that we're, I could talk to you till we die and not create that same feeling in you, that same response. I couldn't communicate the same thing because music communicates in a different way than words do, just like visual art does and all the other arts communicate in different ways. And so we want to honor that and say, you know what, we're all wired differently. There will be things that are helpful for us. And finally, the importance of beauty. I, I think the idea of, if I was smart enough to do a PhD, right, then I would love to do a study on why beauty is important. Because there's something profound about it. As individuals, I think that's true. So we can go outside and we're blessed with where we live, right? We can walk 150 yards from here and we're standing by the seashore. And there's something beautiful about standing on the sand with the waves lapping up, with a view over to Fife. Not often Fife gets mentioned in a conversation about beauty. Eh? Anyway, I'm getting in trouble for that, sorry. Anyway, but we, we stand in a place and there's beauty there. Something profound. I, I try to take a two or three day retreat every year and get out of the city and go away. And I love to go up to the West Highlands somewhere. Last year I went over to the island of Harris. And there's something just stunning about being in a place where man has hardly touched it. Where there's, there's something just of the raw beauty of what God has made. And that's true the world over. We're lucky to be in Scotland where it's sometimes really obvious. But no matter where you travel in the world, there's great beauty right in front of us. And it provokes something in us. And I want to say, I think the biggest argument against atheism is beauty. Because you see, beauty has no point. I have, my, one of my dearest friends is an avowed atheist. I might have told this story before, so I apologize, but it's one of my favorites. James is an avowed atheist. And he, like, he, he finds it funny that one of his best friends is a, is a Christian minister. In fact, it was even funnier when he applied to become a scout uh, leader, and he asked me if I would be one of his references, uh, and that's fine. So he was accepted as a scout leader, but there are t when you become a scout leader, there are two different... Um, vows you can give. One is the, the one that has the Christian bit in it, and there's one that's, that's uh, secular and atheist. And James is like, I'm doing the secular one. And the guy in charge says to him, but your reference was from a minister. What's going on there? James is like, oh, I like him, but I didn't like his God. That was, <laughs> that was his response. And, but James is a climber, and he's climbed all over the world, some of the highest mountains in the world. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, so you get to the top, and you've got this whole sprawl below you, these incredibly beautiful photographs. And you get to look around and go, oh, it's an accident. Oh, well, better go down now. Whereas I get to stand there and say, wow, 
the beauty of my God who created this. And as we were singing earlier, who loves me. Beauty is something profound in a missional context. And art can help us unlock that because it speaks in a way that is profoundly different than just simple words. We're going to have a look at one particular piece of art now and see if I can use some of those things to help us see how we might see a biblical passage differently. So we're going to have a quiz first of all. Does anyone know what that piece of art is? No. That's interesting. It is a Gauguin, yes. Said our artist in the in the room. Well done. Uh, I picked this because it it's in Edinburgh. It's at the National Gallery of Scotland. Uh, it's a painting by Paul Gauguin. Uh, he painted it in France in 1888, in Brittany to be specific. Um, and in 1925, the National Gallery of Scotland bought it for the princely sum of £1,500. It's worth mega, mega millions now because it happens to be one of the most significant pieces of art in a, in a time where art was changing uh, from a, a change from impressionism towards abstraction, uh, which if those words mean anything to you, then bless you. It's, I, I read it in a book. I didn't know that. Um, I, I, so, but, but there is, so I picked this for two reasons. One, because I think it does something profound in, in terms of the story. And the other is because it, uh, it shows us uh, something as well that we can go and see. So over your summer holidays, you can take a jaunt into the National Gallery of Scotland and go and see this. So this, is, this painting is called A Vision After the Sermon. Uh, so you're all going to look like these lovely Breton ladies at the end of this sermon. That will be the vision. Um, and then, there, so I, I should have said this earlier. So he painted it, but before the National Gallery of Scotland bought it, he offered it to the local church where he painted it. And they said, it's rubbish, we don't want it. <laughs> Seriously, it's brilliant. Uh, anyway, I thought that was amusing. Um, so, it depicts two main things. It has in the foreground here, we see these Breton ladies, there are 12 of them, and a priest who's on the, I've got a pointer on this thing actually, don't I? Uh, that one, yeah. A wee priest man here, and uh, then, ah oh yeah, that's great. Um, and then these are the Breton ladies at the front. So that, those are the two main things. And then there's a bunch of smaller things that we'll come to in just a moment. The passage it's depicting is from Genesis uh, chapter 32. Uh, let me uh, read to us from Genesis 32. This is Jacob wrestling with the angel. Jacob has been uh, a bad boy, which is basically pretty much a good way to describe Jacob in the Old Testament. He's, he's, he steals, he's trying to get all that he can for himself. And eventually he decides he has to go back home, but he knows that his brother's going to be furious with him because he stole his brother's birthright. And so he comes up with a plan that what he's going to do is send out his, uh, he's going to send out basically bribes to his brother in advance. And so he sends out lots and lots of animals and lots of uh, um, uh, servants to go and they're all going to meet him and as they go on the way uh, then eventually by the time Jacob takes up the rear his brother won't be angry with him that's that's his plan he thinks that'll fix it all God has a different plan 
So, that, so basically what he's done is he sent all these uh, various herds of animals off with his servants to go and they're all spaced out so they'll arrive one at a time uh, with Esau. And then in Genesis 32 verse 22, we get these verses. That night Jacob got up and took, and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream... He sent, he sent all, over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and, as he was limp, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. The word of God. So, that's the Bible story. This is our picture. Some of the pictures that we're or the images that we're or the art that we're going to look at will have a really straightforward connection to the story and we'll just let help us see maybe some little shades of things that we didn't I, I think next week bell is doing rembrandt's return of the prodigal which is just a beautiful picture and will help us to see something of how that works this one's a little more abstract because it, it is simply jacob wrestling with the angel or with God. He's looking for a blessing. He gets a new name, and as well as a new name, he gets a limp. And so that's what's going on in the, in, the, in the red section there, which I'm pointing up there, but I should point here. That's what's going on here. This is Jacob wrestling the angel. But there are some other things in the image that are really well worth us while having a look at because they pad out the story. And one of the things that we've been trying to do over the whole of the last year is to say, no matter what Bible story we're looking at, it connects to the bigger story, the story of creation, the story of the fall, the story of redemption through Israel and Jesus, and then the hope of a new creation. And actually, Gauguin's done some of that work for us here. So we see, if we're going to ignore these people here, we're going to come to them at the end, if that's okay. But we've got, we've got, uh, we've got uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel here, but we have this thing, which... I'm afraid on this isn't terribly clear, but it's a tree. It seems like a strange thing to put in the middle of a picture. Anyone, any idea why we might put a tree there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Absolutely. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the beginning of Genesis. The one tree that they weren't supposed to eat from in the Garden of Eden. The one place where there was a wrestle between good and evil and evil one when Eve chooses to take the, the fruit from the tree. Not an apple, by the way, just fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. 
And so Gauguin's put that right in the middle of his picture. And so we're being told, as we listen to what this is communicating, this is, this is about something of a struggle, perhaps between good and evil, but certainly about for the sake of humanity's soul. And we know that that's what's going on here that in, with, uh, with Jacob and the angel. This is really about Jacob being transformed from someone who's going to fix everything for himself, or is he going to be someone who trusts God? And isn't the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the same story? Will we trust God or do we have a better way that we can go ourselves? The, the snake says to Eve, did God really say? In other words, don't you think you know better? Exactly the same as what's going on there. What else can we see in this picture? We've got an animal here. It's even less clear on that than it is on my image and having looked really carefully it's really not clear what it is most things seem to suggest that some sort of horned animal okay could be a ram that's my preference um because that would seem to fit the story right the ram comes anyone know a bible story that has a ram in it isaac and jacob god provides the way that where there wasn't one isn't that what's happening in this story here too? Where he touches the hip. Jacob's, Jacob's lost. Jacob is trying to fix things by throwing cash at his brother. And God says, I have another way. I will provide a way. And so Jacob ends up with his limp. Uh, whereas Isaac didn't end up dead because God provided a ram. There's some suggestions it might be a cow is the other possibility. Which I'm not really sure what to do with that. We could kind of extrapolate to something, but the ram works better, I think. Um, and then the other one, and this is the one that it is here. So can you see what this is up here? It's not it's really not very clear. So Jacob is wrestling with uh, the angel or with God on in this red barren space in the front here, and then there's this green section at the top over. A river, which is really not clear on that image at all. But if you go and look at it in the Scottish National Gallery, you'll be able to see that it's there. Um, anyone, any guesses what that might be about? Yeah, the Jordan, the promised land. The fact that there is something more, that there is always something more. This is our recreation part. The, the hope of the Israelites had always been not just that God would fix their problems, but that there would be a Messiah who would come and that that Messiah would ultimately lead to them living this life of great shalom in the promised land. And so in the background of this wrestle with angel, with, with God, of Jacob wrestling with uh, God, we have this image of the promised land over the river there, but always there in the image, always there. God always has a place of hope for us. And so there's a bunch going on in this about that story. But I actually think this image called a vision after the sermon drives us to something else, actually. Something much more deep and actually personal than just what happened in the story or how is Gauguin painting a picture that helps us see some of the things that are going on as Jacob wrestles with God. And I think it's all in the faces of these people at the front here. 
the image apparently is, so the, the, I thought these were nuns when I first looked at it, but it turns out this is the way that people, the women in Br- Brittany uh, dressed. They wore these headdresses. But when we look at the faces, and actually we can see this, there are lots of different kinds of faces going on here. So we have someone here who looks actually quite at peace as they pray. We have someone here who's clearly intended to be sad. There's someone here who looks quite grief stricken. So the, the, the point being, what is the point? I think it drives us to ask, to make the point that this isn't just a story from the Bible, but it's this question of what are we wrestling with, with God? That the vision after the sermon is not just, oh, we heard a nice story today about a man wrestling with God. Actually, we heard a, a story today that causes us then to ask our own question. Where am I wrestling with God? What is it? What is my good and evil wrestle with God? What is God speaking to me about? Where am I trying to go my own way and not trusting what God will say? And so am I finding, as this lady here has seemed to do, some peace in that? Is God speaking peace to me? Is God speaking peace to you as you wrestle with him? Or perhaps you're like the lady who is clearly grief-stricken and sad. Because actually, do you know what? I'm not willing to go there yet. It causes us to ask these deeper questions, which are in that story. If we're going to read that story of Jacob and wrestling with God, we must think about it at a personal level. Where are we wrestling with God? And what's our attitude to that wrestling? Are we just saying, actually, God, I can't be bothered. But Jacob, he clung on. I won't let go till you bless me. I won't let go till you bless me. That must have been painful and tiring and difficult. But he knew that to wrestle with God and to have his blessing would be for his good. And we know that ultimately that's how the story works out. That him and his brother are reconciled. That much good comes out of that in the long run. So what will we do? How will we respond as we look not just at a painting, but at a story? Will we be transformed? Will we be willing to wrestle with God in that stuff that we ignore? The stuff where we think we're all right, but we know God is poking us hard. Will we wrestle with God in it? Or will we just walk away and leave it? Let me encourage you today. Wrestle with God. Find repentance, perhaps as that lady, the sad lady in the picture will do. The place where you say to God, I am sorry for all that I have done. I will turn and go another way, like Jacob did. Or perhaps you just need to pour out your grief to God and lament and sorrow, because there's a place for that. The Bible knows nothing of grief ignored and everything of grief embraced and poured out to God. Or will you, as I hope you do, find the kind of peace that this lady at the front seems to have found? as she prays. All of these things are available to us in God. His blessing is available to us, just as it was to Jacob. In that way, a piece of art can sometimes help us see a story a little differently. Not perfectly, but differently. We are going to end our service today with communion.
which seems like a really helpful response to a challenge to wrestle with God. 